Go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Judges. Uh, Judges is there in the Old Testament. I think it's the seventh book in your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, then Judges. As you're turning there, I'll tell you, a few years ago, uh, our family took a trip to Disney World. It was the first time our kids had ever been there, and uh, they were really excited because there was this new area called Toy Story World. And uh, in Toy Story World, there was this particular ride, this roller coaster called Slinky Dog Dash. And uh, we looked at it, and it looked like a fairly tame ride, something that our kids could handle. And our youngest son, Jude, kind of pointed to it like he wanted to go to it. So we said, sure, let's, let's do it. So we get in, and uh, Jude and my wife are sitting in, in the car behind me. And uh, so I'm sitting there in front of them, and we take off, and, and we're on it. And at first, it's just kind of going on level ground, kind of going to the left and to the right, and everything was good. I turn around behind me. He's got a big smile on his face. He lets out a big, woo! So we're good. We're thinking this is awesome. But then there comes a point in the ride where quickly in successive fashion, it goes up and down, up and down, up and down, to which I turn behind me and I look at him, and he no longer has a smile on his face. His eyes are open wide, and he has a look of terror all over his face. When we get off the ride, I ask him, so what'd you think? He goes, well, I, I didn't like it when it went up and down. I tried to explain to him the best I could to, to a young kid, that's what roller coasters are all about. If you're going to get on a roller coaster, you have to expect it to go up and down. That's part of the deal. And the book of Judges is kind of like watching Israel's history play out on a roller coaster. You see them go up and down, up and down in their faith, sometimes hot, sometimes cold, oftentimes they're lukewarm. You see them just falling into the same temptations over and over and over. And I feel like that's something that we can relate to, right? Have you ever asked yourself, why do I go up and down so much spiritually? A lot of us, we, we feel like we're spiritually bipolar. You know, one week we're super Christian, the next week we're not even sure we believe. Or do you ever ask, why are there some sins that no matter how hard I try, I just can't, I just can't seem to get away from? Or, or how about this, what, why do I have so little joy spiritually? Like everybody else, that they seem to have it all together, they got smiles on their faces, but I just feel like I'm kind of dragging myself along through life. Is, is there something wrong with me? And I'll just say that those people who act like or tell you that they've got it all figured out, that they've got it all together, they're liars and they're fakes, okay? One of the things that I've learned in ministry, in the words of John Ortberg, is everyone's normal till you get to know them. And that includes me, right? We're all weird, we all got our issues. The first two chapters here in the book of Judges, what they do is they recount and they explain Israel's spiritual struggles. And I think you will find your struggles in theirs. And out of them, we're going to draw three core principles that the writer uses to shape the rest of the book. And so here's how the book begins, Judges chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Joshua. Now Joshua, you may remember, had been the mighty warrior general who led the children of Israel into the promised land of Canaan. He had seen a, a lot of great victories. He was a part of, of, of the, the powerful victory when the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. But after he died, there were still parts of the promised land, there were still parts of Canaan that were left unconquered. So, verse 1 continues, the Israelites asked the Lord, who of us is to go up first to fight against the Canaanites? The Lord answered, Judah shall go up, for I have given the land into their hands. And things start off great. 
Verse 4, when Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands, and they struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. Verse 6, Adonai Bezek, which literally in Hebrew means king of Bezek, he fled, but they chased him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Because, of course, why not, right? Verse 7, then Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. Now, if you'll allow me to digress for just a moment, one of the problems that a lot of people have when we come to the book of Judges is they ask, how could God send Israel to go conquer a people? This looks like a religious crusade. It just seems so unjust. It's a good question, but did you hear King Adonai Bezek's perspective on this whole ordeal? He didn't say, God, this is so unfair. No, he said, God has paid me back for what I did. Listen, in Deuteronomy 18 and Leviticus 18, God made clear to Israel that he was driving out the Canaanites because of their excessive wickedness. Israel was God's instrument of judgment. So, so these were not innocent people that Israel was stealing land from. They were cruel people. They were wicked people that God was bringing judgment upon. And Israel was God's instrument of justice. Now, you may say, but come on, Joel, that, that mentality just seems pretty dangerous. Like people taking upon themselves the mantle of God to, to be his instrument of justice. I, I, I don't know about that. And listen, it is true. People who adopt that mentality today, they commit horrific acts of injustice. The difference here is that Israel had clear instructions, a very clear mandate from God. God simply does not do that anymore. With the coming of Jesus, God began working a new way in the world. Jesus came on a saving mission, and those who follow him participate in that saving mission. Jesus did not take life. He laid down his life. And following in the ways of Jesus, we give mercy, not justice. We lay down our lives. We don't take them. It is true that one day King Jesus will bring justice to the world, but our role now is dispensing mercy, not judgment. So anyone today who says, who says that they're on a mandate from God to bring judgment, they're either lying or they are pathologically deceived. Still, maybe you say, come on, the, surely there were innocent people that were affected in this, like at least the children, right? It is true that innocent people sometimes get caught up in judgment. But listen, that wasn't just something that happened in Judges. That happens today, right? If a man cheats on his wife and, and he cheats in his job and he loses his marriage and loses his job, you probably say to him, well, you brought that on yourself, right? But, but what about his children? What about his kids? They suffer too, and the suffering that they endure because of the sins of their father is something that they didn't have anything to do with. There are multiple ways the Bible answers the question of why God allows the innocent to be caught up in someone else's judgment. But one thing it assures you is that before the throne of God, everyone receives full, complete, and total perfect justice. And that what we inherit in eternity will make anything that we experience on earth seem rather trivial. Here's a way you can think of this. Let's say that, that you go to the, to the post office and you discover that they overcharged you 54 cents on a stamp, okay? 
And so you go in and, and you complain to them and they say, okay, we, we understand. Here's what we're going to do. Yes, we overcharge you, but we are going to release you from any future obligation to pay income tax. Okay? Now, don't try this. <laughs> don't, say that I, I, don't, don't say that I sent you. Um, you would say, if that happened to you, that on the whole, you did pretty good with your engagement with the, with the post office. While you may have complained at the time that, that they overcharge you on a stamp, when all is said and done, you're probably not going to spend a whole lot of time complaining about your interactions with, with the U.S. government, right? So when someone dies unfairly or suffers in judgment, we can rest assured that before the throne of God, they receive perfect justice. And, and what they inherit in eternity makes up for anything that they suffer here on earth. The reality is, is all people eventually die. And so for, for these children, God just collected them early, and what they received from the throne of God was full and perfect and fair and complete. And what they receive in eternity makes up for any experience that they have on earth. And in the end, it just seems rather trivial. Now, I know, I get it that that doesn't answer the question fully, but it at least gives us a place to start. So let's get back to the story, verse 19. Chapter 1, verse 19. The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people out from the plains because they had chariots fitted with iron. Now, that makes sense, right? I mean, chariots fitted with iron. This is like the, the ancient day equivalent of, of tanks, okay? Just a couple dozen of these would, would, would mow down hundreds of foot soldiers, which is all that, that Israel had. And so that's why they say we were unable, we, we couldn't drive them out. Verse 27, but Manasseh did not drive out the people of Bethshan or Tanakh or Dor or Iblium or Megiddo and their surrounding settlements, for the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. Israel's going, you see, these people were just really difficult. We asked them politely to leave, and then we talked tough, and then we got into some little skirmishes, but the Canaanites were stubborn. So eventually Israel said, it was like two brothers who were, who were fighting, you just take a, a piece of tape and you draw a line in the room and say, okay, you stay on that side and I'll stay on this side, and, and we won't bother you if you don't bother us. And that's essentially what happens. But look at verse 28. When Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor. Well, that's a win then, right? Instead of driving them out like God told them to do, at least they got some free labor out of them. Tim Keller wrote an excellent commentary on Judges, and he says, Taken on its own terms, chapter 1 reads like a collection of Israel's press releases about their campaign. It is their spin on why they weren't as successful as we and God might have expected. As we read, we are lulled into sympathy with the Israelites. When we are told that they could not drive out the Canaanites, we are inclined to agree. They did their best. And they found a more economical solution to boot. They got free labor out of the Canaanites. All in all, pretty savvy. But then comes God's assessment. Chapter 2, verse 2. But you have disobeyed me period. Check this out. Judges 2, verse 1. I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land I swore to give to your ancestors. 
I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall never make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And I have also said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you, and their gods will become snares to you. Here's the first lesson we learn. A little disbelief produces large destruction. A little disbelief produces large destruction. The Canaanites became a thorn in Israel's side. They were a source of constant warfare. And eventually some of these people, like the Philistines, will rise up and defeat them. Israel said, but, but God, we can't drive them out. We tried. God says, actually, it's not that you can't, it's that you won't. It has nothing to do with you not being strong enough. It has everything to do with you not being confident enough in my grace. And so here's a question that you need to ask yourself. Where are you saying, I can't, but God says, actually, you won't? I think we need to look at our lives like the unconquered land of Canaan. Lurking in every crevice of our own hearts are, are, these, are these Canaanites of unbelief and sin. So where are you saying, I can't, but God would say, you won't? Here are just a few areas that I thought of. One would be the area of integrity. It's where you say, God, if I were totally honest in my job, I'd lose it. You can't be expected to play fairly in this field and survive. Maybe it's the area of extending forgiveness. You say, I, I know that I should forgive this person, but I just can't. Maybe it's the area of avoiding sexual temptation. You go, I, I know it's wrong, but I just can't say no. It's so ironic, <laughs> the, the way that people justify their behaviors especially in this area, people say, well, surely the Bible doesn't really teach this, right? There's got to be another way to interpret it. Because God just wants me to be happy, right? Or this is just who I am. This is how I was created. It's okay because I, I really love them. I truly love them. Or maybe that compromise for you is, is being in a relationship that you know you shouldn't be in. I know single people who stay in relationships that they know they shouldn't be in because they say, God, I'm afraid of being lonely, and, and I, I can't be lonely, so I'm going to have to go out here on my own, and I'm going to have to manufacture this all myself. One of the most common areas of compromise is in the area of financial faithfulness. It's in generosity. People go, God, I can barely afford things the way they are, much less be generous. Give God the first fruits? I can't afford that. I know wealthy people who have said, I'm just not sure the church is the best investment for the future. Think about those words. See, these are the very areas that become areas of defeat. It's where the enemy brings cursing into your life. You say, but God, I can't. God says, no, you won't. It had nothing to do with your inability to obey. It was had everything to do with you not being confident enough in God's strength. You see, Israel had not stopped being zealously religious. They had stopped walking by faith. And there's a huge difference between the two. The mark that you are walking by faith is full and absolute obedience. 
I think there's two basic ways in which we can approach a relationship with God. One is where you're over here doing your own thing, but, but you, you try to obey God enough to keep him happy so that he's just kind of there as a safety net. The other way to approach a relationship with God is where you yield total control to him and you trust him completely. A good way to think of this is repelling. How many of you have ever gone repelling before? Show of hands. A few people. The first time I ever went repelling, I was in junior high. It was with a, a church trip with our youth group. We were on a retreat in West Virginia. And I remember going up to this rock face, and there was a, like a, a college student who was kind of our guide. And he was down below at the base, about 100 feet below, and he had this whole harness system, these ropes, and, and, and I had a harness system on and, and a rope, belay, I think is what they called it, helmet on. And somehow I got chosen to be the guinea pig, right? I was the person who was going to go first. I'd never done this before. So I, I walk up to the edge, and I'm facing this, right? So like you're the youth group behind me, and I'm standing here. I'm, I'm, I'm facing them, and, and, and they say, okay, lean back. Excuse me? Says, yeah, yeah, just just lean back. Like, surely I heard you wrong. Well, here's the deal. Like, my manhood's on the line. I'm I'm in front of my entire youth group, right? I I can't say no, and so I just lean back, and and the rope catches you. And he says, okay, now jump. Excuse me? So I, like, jump, like, two inches. He's like, no, you got to jump. So then I got the hang of you jump and you release the rope and you jump and you release the rope. So other people start doing it afterwards. We're kind of there on the bottom watching everybody. There's one person in our group and he's just deathly afraid of heights. And so he gets up there and, and, and the guy says, okay, lean back. And he's like, no, I'm not going to lean back. And so what he does is he just starts climbing down the side of the mountain. Well, it, it gets to a point where it's no longer straight up like this, but it becomes inverted. And you can't really climb down that way. So he gets to that point, and what does he do? He just climbs back up to the top and says, I'm done, okay? Now, if you had been watching us from a distance, it would look roughly like we were doing the same thing. We were both using a rock. We were both coming down the mountain. But I'm telling you, there is a world of difference between rock climbing and using a rope as a safety net and rappelling. Because when you're rock climbing, you're using the rope as a safety net. And your confidence in that is really in your arms and your legs, okay? The rope's just kind of there in case you fall. But when you're rappelling, you have shifted the weight of your body off of your arms and legs, and now it's on the rope completely. And that is a picture of what it means to walk by faith versus being religious. See, there are a number of people in our world who are religious, they're still using their arms and legs to get through life. And they've kind of got God on their side over here so, so that he's there when they need them. But I'm telling you, that is not the life of faith. The life of faith is one that is yielded fully and completely. One that has total confidence and trust onto the rope that is God's promises. And the only question then is, is where and how? See, when you're religious, you get to this point where you can no longer go on in obedience. It's, it's kind of like my, my friend who was climbing down the, the mountain, and he gets to the place where it's inverted, and, and so what's he do? He, he just starts climbing back up. And that, that's what religious people do. You get to a point where you can no longer obey, and so you go the opposite way. That's what happens when you use the rope as a safety tool. There, there comes a place where you just can't, you won't obey. 
You won't obey in the area of finances. You won't obey in your relationships. You won't obey God when it comes to your future. You say you can't, but God says you won't because you've never learned to trust him fully. You see, Israel's compromise started with a failure of belief. All sins start with a failure of belief. Martin Luther said, every sin springs from a wicked heart of unbelief. It's where little areas of unbelief become large areas of destruction. Again, you got to start seeing your life as these unconquered promised land of Canaan. Lurking in every crevice of your heart are your own little Canaanites of unbelief and sin. And so you've got to send out warriors of faith to defeat them. You do that by preaching the gospel to yourself. All of us, we need to be preaching the gospel to ourselves, to our worries, to our goals, our temptations, our security. We have to drive the enemy out from our hearts. Well, it gets worse. Judges 2, verse 12. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them up out of Egypt. They followed and worshiped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. So Israel starts to go after the the gods of the people around them, and then those people enslave them. The second lesson we learn is that we choose between the God who saves and gods that enslave. We choose between the God who saves and gods that enslave. If there were ever a place in the Bible that demonstrates that sin leads to slavery, it's right here. It's where you give yourself to an idol because it promises you power and freedom. In fact, if you're looking for a good definition of an idol, there it is. Anything that promises freedom and power and happiness without God. But all it does is lead you and put you in chains. See, back in that day, it, it, was, the, it was the promise of security. It was the promise of rain. Today, it would probably have something to do with money. Money says, I can give you power. I can give you freedom. And so you pursue it. But you never have enough, do you? It destroys your family. It destroys your integrity. It destroys your health. It's always demanding more. It promised power and freedom, but you're never satisfied. You're always jealous. You're constantly worried. Listen, this is not the life of a free man. This is the life of a slave. Or you give your life to build your reputation. You want to get to the point where you walk into a, room, into a room, all eyes are on you. You think then you'd have power, you'd have freedom. But you find that it had the opposite effect. You become really sensitive to other people's criticism. You become obsessive over what people think about you. You're always bitter that, that people don't recognize your full worth. Again, this is not the life of a free man. This is the life of a slave. So in contrast to the gods that enslave them, Judges gives you a glimpse into the heart of Israel's God. Judges 2, verse 14. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them to the hands of raiders who plundered them. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Now there are three things that we see in these couple verses here that reveal God's heart towards his people. The first one is anger. Make no mistake about it, God is righteously angry at sin. God is a jealous God, and he is jealously angry over our betrayal. And sometimes people don't understand God's jealousy because 
we're, we're kind of taught that, that jealousy is a bad thing, right? You know, we, we get annoyed when, when somebody has what, what you want, you're insecure, you're obsessive over someone's attention. We think that's bad. But there is a sort of thing that's called a, a good jealousy, a jealousy that is a natural part to love. Like, I, I am righteously jealous about my kids. I'm jealous that, that they learn to love the right things. Like, every parent that I know thinks about this, that they think a lot about the influences on their kids, and they want their kids to, to, to grow up loving and knowing the right things. That is a good jealousy. I am right to be jealous over the affections of my wife. I want her affections to, to be centered on me and not on another man. And that's as much for, for her good as it is for mine. Now, yes, it is possible to be obsessive about that, but that's not what God does. God is, is jealous to be, our, to be our only God. He's jealous to be the only object of our worship. You see, the opposite of love is not anger, it's apathy. God does this because he's passionately in love with us. So we see that God is angry, but we also see his pity. He, he sees his people in distress. Verse 18 says the Lord relented, or he was moved to pity because of their groaning. It moved God emotionally to see his people hurting, even when they had brought that suffering on themselves, even when they weren't sorry about it. It's like me when, when I see my child in, in pain, I see them suffering, even when it was their fault, even when it was something that they brought on themselves. That doesn't cause me to love them any less. If anything, it causes me to love them more. So we see God's anger, we, we see his pity, but then in verse 16, we see that he acts in salvation. He raises up judges to deliver them. And that's the rest of what we will discover as we study the book of Judges together. But, but here's the dilemma. These judges will turn out to be broken themselves. They will fall prey to the same problems that Israel had. They're inconsistent. They're unbelieving. They're cowardly. They're greedy. They're rash. They're immoral. And so the question that emerges from the book of Judges is this. How can these men and women be Israel's saviors when they themselves need to be saved? It reminds me of the true story of a grandmother in California. She was looking out the, the window uh, in her kitchen to the pool out back, and she noticed her two-year-old granddaughter stumble into the pool. And so she ran out of the house to, to, to go get her granddaughter. Three hours later, the EMS pulled both the granddaughter and the grandmother out of the pool. See, the grandmother couldn't swim either. The one doing the saving can't have the same problem as those who need to be saved. The ones who would save us can't have the same issues we have. Otherwise, how could they be our Savior, right? See, see, church, that's why every other religion doesn't work for me. Because the people who claim to do the saving have the same problems as those of us who need to be saved. See, I've got two problems. I need to be delivered from sin, and I die. So if someone's going to save me, they can't have a sinful nature, and they can't die. So Buddha may have taught some good things, but he died. Muhammad may have taught some good things, but, but he died. 
And so if someone's going to save me, they're going to have to live a sinless life, and they're going to have to come back from the dead. And there's only one person in history who's done that, and that's our Savior. So the book of Judges, what it does is it sets up this question that points to another judge whose story isn't recorded in Judges, but we see traces of it throughout. It's the story of Jesus. Judges tells us, you choose between two types of gods. The gods that enslave or the only God that saves. Gods that put you in chains or gods that love you like a father, like a husband. Now, some people say, well, listen, I won't choose either. I'm not a religious person. Ah, but you will. You see, every person is an instinctive worshiper because that, that is the human heart. You can no more turn off your drive to worship by not being religious than you can turn off your sex drive by remaining single. Your soul will always find something to cherish, something on which to build your identity, something you have determined will give you happiness and power and peace and security. The question is not if you'll worship, the question is what you'll worship. So if you give yourself to the gods of the Canaanites, you give yourself to money, if you give yourself to fame or romance or family or respect, you will become a slave to it. But if you give yourself to God, you will find the, fir- the most freeing, the most satisfying, the most forgiving love ever known. Again, Tim Keller says, Jesus is the only God who if you find him will satisfy you and if you fail him will forgive you. If you run from him, will pursue you. Here's the third and final lesson that these chapters teach us. Forgetting leads to falling away. Forgetting leads to falling away. Do you notice that when God confronted them. He said this in chapter 2, verse 1. I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land I swore to give to your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. You wonder why he starts there? Does he think that they didn't know? They know they've just forgotten. They don't think about it. Again, chapter 2, verse 10. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. So had this generation ever heard of the Passover? Had they ever heard of the deliverance through the Red Sea? Had they ever heard of of the story of Jericho? Of course they had. They knew these stories. They knew them up here. The Hebrew word for know is the word yada. Yada, it means an intimate love. It has sexual connotations. We're told that, that Adam knew yada, his wife Eve. So the issue here is, is these people weren't familiar intimately with these things. These things, these stories weren't precious to them. And so that's why God starts by reasoning with them. He says, I brought you up out of Egypt. I I delivered you from slavery. Why would you not trust me for these small things? And so let me ask you a question and really think about it. Why would you trust God with your eternal salvation but not trust him in your day-to-day life? You, you believe that, that, that God paid for your sins. You believe that he has eternity taken care of for you, but, but you won't trust him in your everyday life. Tell me how that makes sense. A God you can trust with your eternity is a God that you can trust with your budget. A God that paid for your sin is a God that you can trust with your emotional needs. 
A God that overcame death is a God that, that you can trust with your future. You can trust him with your marriage. You can trust him in your parenting. So you need to think about this. You need to teach this to your children. Parents, consider this. In one generation, we go from a people who knew God and they saw God knock down the walls of Jericho to a people who no longer even know who God is. It happens that quickly. Parents, you are the ones entrusted to teach your kids to know the Lord and cherish the things that he's done for his people. Yeah, they learn about it here in church, but you are the one that's going to show it to them. You are the one that's going to model it to them. Parents, are your children learning the preciousness of the gospel, the acts of God, the promises of God from you? Do they see it in your priorities? Do, do they see it in how you spend your money? Do they see it in how you structure their lives? If you were to evaluate just the things that you have them involved in, their extracurricular activities, what would they determine is most important? What college they go to? What sort of career and job they go into? Or where they determine the most important thing is whether or not they're walking with God and where they spend eternity. The Bible is clear. Forgetting leads to falling away. It says, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Will that be true of your family? Chapter 2, verse 4, it says that when Israel saw the damage they had caused to themselves and their children, they wept. They wept. But apparently they didn't repent. Because re repentance means changing things. Weeping is good. Repentance is better. So what's this look like for you? What do you need to change? For some of you, you might need to change your habits Others of you, it might mean reprioritizing your schedules in your lives. For some of you, it means getting your family involved in the life of the church so that church becomes less a religious event that you attend on the weekends and more a community that you belong to, something you're invested in. Still, for others of you, it might be to resolve to obey God fully in all things. Where you say, I'm not just going to rock climb anymore, but I'm going to repel. I'm going to lean back. I'm going to trust fully in God. I'm going to resolve to obey you in all things. What is it that you need to change? Let's pray. God, I pray that, that the story of Judges would be one that that resonates with us because it's a story full of flawed people, people who struggle just like we do. But God, I pray that, that, that you would give us eyes of faith, eyes to see that, that there are so many gods out there that are vying for our attention and vying for our time and, and, and they're trying to enslave us. But God, I pray that we would realize that, that true freedom comes from you. So God, I, I pray that, that we would be a church, we would be a people who walk by faith. That we trust in you, our confidence is in you. We obey you fully and completely. That, that we're not crafting you into our own image. We're not trying to, to, to follow you 
halfway, using you as a safety net. But God, I pray that, that we, would, we would rely on you fully. And God, if there's someone here today who's never done that, they've never put their faith and their trust fully in you, they've never accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior, I pray that today would be the day that they call on the name that is above every name. They would call on the name of Jesus. Knowing that you are a perfect, righteous judge, the only one who could save us. Because Jesus knew no sin. He conquered death. He was raised again on the third day. God, I pray for, for others of us who need to repent. We need to change. God, I pray that you would, you would show us through your Holy Spirit, you convict us and, and let us know what that change needs to be so that we can make it and walk fully in faith. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.